0: Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Aaron Hyman, Assistant Professor in the Department of the History of Art at Johns Hopkins. And I'm joined today by Nancy Ohm, Professor in Art History and Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Inclusion at SUNY Binghamton, along with Pepi Carmel, Associate Professor of Art History at New York University. I'm here in my role as Editorial Board Member at CAA Reviews, as today we're talking about a three-part series authored by Nancy and Pepi entitled The Future of Art History, two parts of which have already been published in the journal, the third of which will soon appear. So thank you, Pepe and Nancy, for being here and for agreeing to speak about this really interesting, extremely engaging, and what seems to me very important work. I want to turn the floor over to the two of you to describe this series and some of its aims, its findings, and the arc that runs through the three different pieces.
1: Well, first of all, I just want to thank you, Erin, for serving as moderator on this podcast. And I would also really just like to thank you for providing the spark of inspiration for us to continue it. And I do want to just identify that uh, after the first piece came out in August, 2020, Erin contacted me and encouraged me and the group to continue working on this topic and, you know, give us a sense that there would be a continuing interest in it. And so I don't think we would be here today if it weren't for you, Erin. And we really just want to thank you for the encouragement and the interest. And I also do want to uh, just acknowledge that uh, of the two pieces that came out, the one in August 2020 and the one in June 2021, the second one was a co-author article with Emily Hagen, who is a PhD candidate at Penn State University. And Emily is not here with us today, but I do want to acknowledge um, all of the work that she did and, of course, that that was a jointly produced piece. And I think I'm going to just kind of talk about um, how the project started and then how it developed and then you know kind of what came out of it. So I began working on the CA dissertation roster in 2019 uh, and it was in the course of writing an article about Islamic art and architectural history which is my subfield and in that article I just remarked kind of offhandedly about the growth of that field. And it was one of those moments where you write something and then you pull back a little bit and you ask yourself well is that the case has this field grown i mean it certainly feels like it has grown to me but then i started thinking about what kind of evidence that i had to that particular point and where i could find evidence to that point point. and so it really started just looking essentially for a footnote and eventually that brought me to the dissertation roster and because i'm someone who's been working with data inflected methods now for many years When I started to look closely at the roster, I saw immediately that this is what we would call a structured data set. And that just simply means that it's a body of information that is organized in fields, which would allow us to ask questions about patterns, about distribution, and because there's chronological information here too about change over time. And so it became immediately apparent to me that this was worth delving into further and that this went beyond my own subfield of Islamic art and architectural history. And uh, I was very lucky to uh, connect with a computer scientist uh, at Binghamton University, where I work. And he helped me to scrape the information from the web. So I essentially gave access to thousands of entries within minutes uh, using a Python script that he wrote for me. And then I start to dig into that data. Uh, But then the interesting thing, and I think this is important in terms of our current context, is that uh, I didn't dig into that data until after COVID hit, and I think a lot of you could probably uh, relate when I say that at a moment when I was essentially locked in my house for months and I had no access to a library or to any research uh, possibilities, that project seemed to be a really good one to take up, and so I started to dig into that data, and I worked in it on it uh, during that period, so it was my pandemic project. The first article came out and after that, Pepe got in touch with me and told me that he had been working on the roster. I reconnected with Cassie Mansfield at Penn State University uh, who told me that she and her team had been working uh, on the roster as well. And that team includes not just Emily Hagen, the graduate student whom I mentioned, but also Carolyn Lugarelli and Catherine Adams who are of the Visual Resources Center and Heather Froelich, a digital scholarship librarian. And since then, we have all been involved in this extended collaboration on the roster. And that's resulted uh, now in those two articles, the one that came out last year and the recent one. And then we essentially look at the dissertation roster to just explore patterns in the history of art. Some of them are just purely quantitative. How many dissertations have been completed each year in art history? Where were those dissertations completed? Who advised them? What kinds of fields come up? And we've looked recently at the gender of the authors, for instance. And uh, so it's been a really lively project that Pepe is going to be taking even further in his piece that should be forthcoming shortly. So maybe I'll turn it over to Pepe right now.
0: But if I can just jump in for a minute, that's so interesting that effectively you have three different teams, Nancy um, at Binghamton, the Penn State team, and then Pepe with your project based at NYU, that you would all be looking at the CA rosters sort of independently as a data set and as something that, as you said, Nancy, in your first piece had been until that point relatively unmined within the historiography of the field. So Pepe, in sort of turning it over to you, how did you get started with that, if we want to call it a data set or an object of analysis, How did you alight upon that as something that was potentially of interest? I have a very similar backstory to
2: Nancy. About 10 or, I don't know, 15 years ago, I wrote a piece for um, Visual Resources on contemporary art and its role in art history. And somehow, well, I I mean, similar, like, you know, well, how many contemporary theses are there? I stumbled across the CAA reviews roster and thought, well, this is interesting, and used it a bit uh, in a non-data way uh, in that article a long time ago. And then like Nancy last summer, here I was stuck at home, you know, in front of this bookcase and thought, oh yeah, maybe it's time to do something with that. But, but I had a more focused idea in my mind, not just to look for patterns in general, but the thing that I was concerned about was employment outcomes in art history. And this basically comes out of I don't supervise PhD theses. I'm in the Department of Art History at NYU, so I mostly teach undergraduates, don't supervise any dissertations. I employ a lot of graduate students, you know, and they become my friends, and I stay in touch with them for years. And I noticed how many people, you know, seem to be having trouble finding jobs. And I thought, well, you know, how bad is the situation really? Or is it better than it looks like? You know, it would be nice to have some information. So in a way, uh, just exactly parallel to Nancy's, I think I thought, oh, well, here's this resource. If I started with the rosters, that would you know let me know who finished in a given time period. And then maybe we could track down some of them. I used a much less sophisticated technique than Nancy. It's all been kind of basically stone age technology. I hired a research assistant and she actually manually transcribed 10 years worth of dissertations, which was about 2,350. Nancy, you must have a lot more than that.
1: Yes, because especially when we went back into the 40 years of data and that uh, involved turning back to the uh, early rosters in the art bulletin, our data set uh, grew consi- considerably uh, to over 6,000 entries.
2: Wow. Well. I figured 10 years worth of data was all that Alexa, Alexa Breininger, my research assistant, could transcribe before she, you know, went berserk. So um, that seemed to be a manageable number. Uh, it was over 2,000 of them. Uh, and then once we had that data, which then had to be cleaned, I mean, I know are programs for data cleaning, but a lot of it was just, you know, checking one thing against another, again, Stone Age technology here. Then we launched on to our big question, which was, you know, what are people doing now? Employment and so forth. But you know, I'm thinking that before I start into this, um, Nancy, you you discovered a lot of interesting things in your survey of the CAA results and CAA categorizations. And I'd really rather kind of hand the mic back to you for a while and then let you tell us about that.
0: Yeah, that seems like a really good idea. So In a sense, uh, Nancy, your two essays painted a picture of dissertations completed over the past 40 years. And you were looking at the various trends in the field, whether that was breakdown by subfield, breakdown by gender, and the different centers of training, whether that be regionally, you point to a, a particular concentration of programs and also density of students in New York, but also individual programs and their impact on the field. Additionally, you look at individual dissertation advisors and the ways that they've shaped the field through the sheer number of students that they've trained. So could you paint the picture a little bit of you know, what your data showed in terms of dissertations that have been completed in the discipline?
1: Sure. And uh, first I'll start by saying that when I started working with the data set, I had really no idea what it was going to show. I mean, of course, we all have this sense of what has been happening in the field. And uh, I don't think that it was a huge surprise for instance to Pepe or to me or to you that the Institute of Fine Arts is by far the largest producer of PhDs in this country. I will say, I was very surprised by the scale, though. I mean, I realized that it was, you know, very prolific in terms of the number of degrees that are generated. I didn't realize that it was so far outpacing other institutions, including other very large and prominent programs. So that was interesting to me. Um, this question of growth stayed with me. And uh, really, I, I start to think of, you know, not just about counting, but really what constitutes growth in the field, right? Because we have a, a large upswing in terms of numbers and uh, a steep rise in the late 90s and the 2000s. And of course, this is you know, the period when I was doing my own dissertation, actually. So of course, uh, it was, it's always fun to see yourself in that list and to see all of your cohorts in that list. That rise continues up to around the year 2013, but then we see a drop. Right. And so I think that's also very interesting to understand that we're not talking about unequivocal growth, that it's not even my speculation and my suspicion is that we are not going to reach those high numbers again uh, anytime in the near future. Also, considering the fact that a lot of institutions last year and maybe even into the future have cut down their admissions. And so uh, it was interesting to think about this question. Uh, Was that the heyday of art history in terms of this kind of moment in which the field was kind of churning forward? Uh, I don't think I can answer that question fully, but indeed the data suggests these patterns that uh, we can uh, very much make out when we look at these quantitative trends. And um, again, those were things that I had suspected, but could not have sketched it in that way. But the other idea of growth, and I think this is also really important, is not just about mere numbers, it's also about the number of institutions, right? So we have kind of expansion in terms of the number of PhD-granting institutions great variation in terms of their sizes, in terms of programs, how many PhDs they're generating, how many faculty members they have and so forth. And so uh, lots of interesting questions I think were generated, more questions perhaps than answers though.
0: What's so exciting to me about these projects is the way that both of you are looking at the historiography of the field of art history, but from a data analytic rather than some sort of purely narratival perspective. And you both have touched on this a little bit in terms of thinking about the methods that you've used. Of course, these are not really methods that art art historians are typically trained to use. And so I'd love to know how you both got started doing this kind of work um, and what sort of skill sets you had to acquire to go about doing it, and then how you how you actually went about acquiring those skills in the first place.
1: First of all, thank you for the question. I think it's a really important one, and I will say, um, as a principal, I do think that while these methods are not widespread among uh, you know all of us in the field, I do think that moving forward, the ability to deal with large quantities of data and to do so in ways that are nuanced, to do so in ways that are aware of the kind of source of this data and to visualize it in ways that can help to make an argument, I do think that is going to be one of the greatest assets for art historians moving forward. So I do want to put that forward as the principle. And in one way, this project was indeed about all of the things that I've already told you that it was about, but it also was in a way to try to instigate our colleagues to kind of think about what these methods are, with the understanding that if one can see oneself, in a data set, they become implicitly more interested in it. And that indeed, maybe this kind of side door kind of way of demonstrating the power of data-driven methods and their potential for art historians, and that we can all do this kind of stuff, right? That it's not uh, really, uh, it's no longer, I think, a very specialized domain. Um, it can be, these can be very, I would say, universal skills within the field. That was part of my goal with this project, I would say. But in terms of, you know, skill sets, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I guess I should also add that I'm not only an art historian, but as you mentioned, Erin, I'm also an administrator. I work as an associate dean in the college. My life is awash in spreadsheets. And uh, so kind of manipulating working with data is something that's part of my wider profile. But I did have to kind of cobble together these skills because I was never trained in them formally, Not certainly not when I was a graduate student. And so I've kind of picked them up using some of the instruments that everyone uses like Excel, but then kind of working with some uh, more powerful data analytical tools like Tableau, which is a really great tool because it allows you to quite easily display the uh, results of your data um, in ways that um, can have a great impact. But there was a moment where I essentially, my needs exceeded those tools. And so I began to work with the programming language R. Uh, which is um, I would call a Swiss army knife of all computational methods. And I highly, highly recommend it because it just got to a point where I wanted to do more things with my data, just in terms of working with it, but also visualizing it, right? And the great thing with R is it is not a single piece of software. It allows you to mobilize all of these different methods. Um, And it's really kind of endless in that way. And so um, I will just do my plug for R as well. And I would love to see more art historians feeling like their languages are, I don't know, for me, you know, my research languages are Arabic, French, and Dutch, and are, okay, (laughs) and so that's something that, you know, I would love to see uh, more common in the future.
0: I love this idea that computational analysis or different platforms for data analysis would be something akin to a research language that we use, and I also just have to say that I really like the idea of sort of Um, covertly winning people over to data analysis by showing them um, themselves actually and their place within the data and that is borne out anecdotally in the way that the tables were shared so widely on social media platforms after your first piece came out Nancy and I think there was a, a lot of buzz around you know look at my advisor who ranks fifth on the list of most students advised over the course of their career or where is our program in this list of PhD, PhDs that have been trained in the last 40 years, et cetera. So I think there is a kind of human element of data in the story and in the way that both of you are telling this story that makes it approachable in a different way than a lot of these projects often, often feel. Peppy, what about you? How did you sort of come to this kind of project, this kind of analysis and what were some of the um, hurdles or stumbling blocks that you had to get past?
2: Well, my history with this stuff actually goes back to the senior year in high school when somebody donated a kind of pioneering really early desktop computer before Apple to my high school. And I was very intrigued and started playing with it and started writing programs for it, you know, back in the days when if you could write 64 lines of code on one magnetic strip, it was amazing. So that was fun. And then I dropped it because I didn't study computer stuff in college. And then years later, when I was working on my dissertation in the late 80s and the early 90s, I was studying Picasso's Cubist drawings, and there were about 1,500 drawings, which was a whole, whole lot of drawings to keep track of. So I kind of hacked the database from what was the word processor we used in those days, WordPerfect. It had a mail merge program, you know, where you could enter addresses so I retitled all the fields in the mail merge program and used them to, you know, as fields for cataloging Picasso's drawings and produced a kind of digital catalog that way. And then a, a few years ago, I was at some conference or something. I met this amazing professor named Dina Engel who seemed to have all these brilliant ideas about computer science and art. It turns out that she was from someplace really, really far and she taught in the NYU math department about two blocks from my office. We just had never met each other. So we started talking a lot and we ended up doing a seminar called Digital Tools for Art History. We, we covered a lot of topics. I mean, that would be a whole nother discussion in its own right, but the one that's relevant is that she introduced me to a kind of software called SQL, Structured Query Language, which is the actual kernel at the core of all databases. This was invented in the 1960s and whether it's FileMaker Pro or Microsoft Access or whatever database you're interested in, actually at the center of it is SQL. But you can get a stripped out free version of SQL without all the fancy stuff. So Dina taught me and our class how to use it to interrogate a, a spreadsheet. We took Donald Gordon's catalogs uh, catalog of early 20th century uh, avant-garde exhibitions and typed in a couple of thousand entries. You know, my students were bored out of their skulls, but, you know, they survived. And then Dina showed us how to use SQL to ask questions like, you know, how many Picassos, how many landscapes, stuff like that. So that was basically the toolkit that I had in hand last summer when I started thinking about what could I do with the, the uh, CAA Reviews dissertation list.
1: I just want to kind of respond to that. Uh, you know, I already talked about how I had a, a collaboration with a computer scientist on campus, and Pepe's talking about a collaboration with um, a colleague in math. And, uh, you know, if you were to ask me, you know, 10 years ago, would I ever think about, you know, uh, co authoring an article with a computer scientist, I would have just laughed at you, um, really. Uh, but I think it's really exciting to think about kind of bridging those deeper gaps between disciplines um, that become very possible and very relevant in this world. And, uh, that's been, I would say it's challenging because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, not, you know, or let's say a lack of uh, common ground in a lot of, uh, in a lot of aspects of the work we do, uh, but it's also really exciting and can be pretty rewarding.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, this goes back to C.P. Snow in his famous lecture about the two cultures. There's a kind of mass phobia amongst humanists in general which seems to me, you know, deeply masochistic and self-destructive, if I can be hyperbolic about it. If you've used Zotero to build a bibliography and to classify books and articles in the bibliography, then you're already doing data science. And, you know, if you've done that, you know how fantastically useful it is. And the, the technology at the core of what I did on this project, which is tagging and then extracting information with SQL, is What they use in Zotero. I mean, this is basically Zotero applied to a different, you know, it's not literally that program, but it's that kind of program applied to a different data set. And honestly, I mean, I'm sorry to sound like a crusader, but I really think we should all know how to do this. That it's it it opens up so many possibilities, you know, whatever you're working on.
0: Well, I think what's interesting to me is that while that might have been the working method that led to the results, the results of both of your studies are deeply human stories about the historiography of the discipline and are relatable in a way that is no different from reading any kind of narrative-based analysis. So some sort of disconnect between the humanities and its modes of storytelling or its modes of analysis and these computational modes of analysis sort of fall apart when one is actually just reading the piece. And I think that's one of the, the real strengths that both of you are bringing to this as writers in addition to analysts of the data. That said, one of the things that was really interesting for me in reading the pieces is the way that data analysis seems to offer something like snapshots of the field. You're selecting certain data coordinates and certain subsets of the data, and these are then offered up as something like crystallized pictures of a moment or of a subfield or of a, as Nancy said, a change over time story. And could you maybe briefly, maybe starting with Pepe, describe the snapshots that your work has produced? Like if if you're thinking about what are the five most important takeaway pictures?
2: Yeah, I mean, as I said, my big starting point for this was, well, what are employment outcomes? What actually happened to all those people who got PhDs in art history. And I should add that this required a great deal of research that was not ready-made, that wasn't available on CAA reviews. My assistant and I went out and tried to track down every one of those 2,350 people. And much to my surprise, we located about 95% of them. And then we needed to, you know, classify, okay, uh, not just our version of what Nancy had done, which was, you know, what are their dissertations on, what are their fields, but what are they doing now? How do we classify that job? and so forth. So this led me in very general terms to a long list of kind of types of jobs that you might get with a PhD or that you you might get even though you didn't really need a PhD to get it. And to make a very gross generalization, and I should add that this is something Nancy and I have argued about in the past. I mean, this is, you know, this is not objective truth. This is, you know, judgment calls. It seemed to me that there are three big categories Good jobs, you know, this is what you train, what you got your PhD to do, to be a tenure track professor, to be a curator in a museum, to be an archaeologist, maybe to work in a nonprofit foundation as a you know grants officer, and you need to have a PhD for that. And what I found after a lot of number crunching is that represents 51% of the jobs that people got from that tenure cohort which is better, you know, the classic statement about the humanities is that less than half of people in the humanities get degrees for which they've trained, you know, get jobs for which they've trained. Well, 51% is a little better, but it's not a lot better. And then I have a category of what, okay, Nancy has urged me repeatedly not to call these bad jobs. So I'm not calling them bad jobs. Really, I'm not. Basically, things like being, you know, an adjunct and stuff like that, Uh, And that represents about 32% of people are doing things like that. And then there are jobs which are a more ambiguous category, which are perfectly good jobs. And here Nancy and I actually probably agree, working in museum education or being a librarian or working in the commercial art world. And these are, you know, can be terrific jobs. The question, however, is, did you really need to get a PhD to get that job? You know, could you have gotten an MA? Could you have just gone in with a BA? Uh, And that represents about 16% of the total. So that's the really big picture. Uh, The other snapshot, which isn't exactly a snapshot, is looking at, you know, how different programs fare. You and Nancy were mentioning, you know, the personal side. And so, uh, you know, there's a limited number of schools that do distinctly above average. And to my, I I don't want to say surprise, but rather strikingly, Uh, The three schools with really outstanding results, which is to say 80% to 100% of their graduates have, you know, good jobs in the sense I just defined, are Tulane, the University of Arizona, and UC Irvine. Didn't see that one coming. It should be said that these are all very small programs that basically graduate like, you know, one person a year. So they're, you know, handmade. I'm sure they all go to bat tremendously for their graduates. And that's wonderful. In the next tier, which is with 60 to 69 percent good outcomes, you see some unsurprising names. Yale, Princeton, Harvard, they graduate seven to nine PhDs a year. And then we get to the Institute of Fine Arts, and it, it pains me to be critical. It's my alma mater and, you know, many friends who teach there and all that good stuff. But I'm sorry to report that it's resoundingly average. It sits right, literally on the average, fifty one percent. I mean, this comes back to the question about growth. I mean,, a few minutes ago, Nancy, you were describing, you know, the heyday of art history uh, with all those, uh, you know, graduates, all those people doing degrees until two thousand and thirteen. I actually see that as the disaster of art history. Um, One thing that occurred to me on looking at my results and comparing them with, you know, a graph in your second article was that, as you pointed out, the number of PhDs per year doubled after 1995. So we have that fact on one hand. On the other hand, we have the fact that half of the people with PhDs aren't getting the jobs for which they train. It occurred to me, you know, if we'd stayed where we were in 1995, practically everyone would have a job, a good job. So that's the biggest snapshot. I mean, there's more about, you know, geographical location where the jobs are and so forth, but I, I,
0: I'll stop here for the moment anyway. Great, so that seems like, um, you know, one of the things that Pepe is describing is that sometimes the data really surprises you and gives you pictures of the field that you really didn't expect. And I'm wondering, Nancy, it seems, you've already mentioned this a couple of times, that there were some things that were really surprising to you. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to, the things that the data revealed to you that you really weren't expecting.
1: Sure and uh, before doing that I do want us to say a few words about uh, because Pepe has already kind of primed this by mentioning that of course this data is one needs to understand what we're looking at, one needs to understand uh, that data is one way of knowing. Those of us who are really interested in data-driven methods uh, in the humanities uh, don't use data-driven methods because they, we believe that they represent some kind of ironclad truth in comparison to our like softer analytical methods in the humanities. To the contrary, data is really sticky, messy, problematic, and uh, indeed, again, it is one way of knowing, like every way of knowing has huge holes and problems. I do want to just say that that's something we're aware of. We know that there's lots of holes in this data. For instance, uh, Pepe's dissertation does not appear in the CCA dissertation roster for some reason, which we found, uh, realized as we were going through this after many, many conversations. And he's not the only one who is absent. Uh, I do want to say that the team at Penn State University is in the process of making their data set, which has been enhanced, and they're hoping to actually enhance it further by filling in some of those gaps. So this is something that can be addressed, but of course it takes labor, time, and effort. So I did just want to kind of mention that as one thing that I think is really important to foreground here because uh, you know a lot of the response that I've gotten, some people have been a little bit uh, let's say ornery when they notice that something doesn't look right to them or something is missing. And uh, in many ways, I tried to kind of stay close to the data rather than kind of even when I would know that something was missing than just kind of here or there adding in adding things in or uh, making amendments that were very subjective or uneven. And so I did want to uh, say that first. Um, But in terms of the surprising things, I don't think any of the patterns themselves were shocking. Again, I think it was always about scale. And uh, one of the questions that I didn't realize was a question until I started to crunch the data and to look at it was this question about what constitutes a prolific advisor? Okay, and we think about, it, we use terms a lot, like we'll describe when we talk about an influential scholar, someone who advised, you know, large generations of students or, you know, had a, a you know, a, a, you know, a really influential career in advising. And uh, I've used those terms before in describing, uh, uh, you know, certain individuals. Uh, but if you were to ask me, you know, what does that really mean? in terms of numbers. I don't think I could have told you before I did this study. right? So it was really interesting to just look at some of the data on the ground for that. And I think of anyone who's read the two articles will know that the um, revered art historian Linda Nochlin not only is the most generative advisor of this group but she is by twofold. And so, uh, first of all, I should say very clearly I don't know exactly how many students she advised. Uh, There are different sources that all give slightly different numbers. It's somewhere uh, around the mid 60s, so maybe 65, 67, and it is that's it's kind of an interesting thing because that's something you think would be very easy to figure out. But I will say that uh, it's you know ProQuest gives us a different number than the CA dissertation rosters, Um, and I know that there's absences in both. I should say. Looking at her particular legacy was so interesting. It, again, didn't surprise me that she was uh, at the top of that list. But the fact that those other very influential advisors who had very, who've trained large numbers of students, their numbers were closer to, you know, 30 or 25. And that there were very few, it was really a handful of individuals of the over 1,000 distinct advisors who advised 20 or more students. And I I just thought that was kind of interesting to think about, you know, what constitutes, again, a significant cadre of students. And that was something that I could not have answered for you before. And so that was an interesting question um, because I am interested in legacy and how we think about this question of influence. Who shapes our field? Who has the power to shape our field? And I think that some of these uh, data points will help us to answer some of those questions as we move forward.
0: I was really fascinated by that data. Um, and it was also interesting to think beyond these kind of luminaries that one might read in a methods class to subfields that are not your own and that you might not being, be paying attention to so who's really advising a lot of PhD students in contemporary or modern Latin American art, who's really a mover and shaker in the Chinese field or in East Asian more broadly conceived that's something that really came out in your data sets Nancy, um, in profound ways so really thank you for that and it's really helpful as a, one mode as you said one mode of many but a mode of thinking about the discipline and, and the way it is shaped today you mentioned um in various ways while discussing sort of some of the surprises that had come about that the data sets that you are both working with are in your words Nancy sticky and that there were gaps in these data sets, and that even when you were drilling down for a very specific kind of total number, like the dissertations advised by Nigel Linda Auckland, that this you could get different numbers for the different sources of data that you were looking at. So I wanted to touch a little bit on this question of missing data and another way to get at that might be to ask, what questions did you two find really difficult to answer because of the ways that the data had been collected or stored, or as the case may be, not collected or not stored? Do you think that you could speak to that a little bit, Pepe? I can speak to it, but I have to confess, I don't really have a good answer since my my work
2: was so much directed towards what can I get out of this data set? I didn't arrive with a, a set of questions and then discover, no, I can't answer X or Y. I mean, if anything, I've been surprised what it is possible to answer. Uh, a couple of months ago or three months ago, I don't know. Um, I was talking to one of my sons who's uh, you know, trained in computer science himself and you know is in the tech business in San Francisco driving up rents and all that sort of thing. And he said, so where are the jobs? And my first response was to be kind of flustered and said, well, I don't know exactly. And he said, well, surely people will want to know, you know, not only will they get a job, but if so, where is it likely to be? And after feeling flustered and upset for a week or so, I thought, you know, actually that probably is something that could be figured out based on the data that I've got. And Nancy very kindly put me in touch with another graduate student at Binghamton, Jason Turcha who helped me crunch those numbers and generated maps of where the jobs are and so forth. And, you know, so he generated, oh, I don't know how many maps you're seeing. There should be like one there. You know, this is a map of where the jobs of tenure track jobs are in the United States. But I should add that this is a little misleading because the circles are really, and this actually tells you something about maps. I mean, Nancy mentioned earlier that there's this great program called Tableau, and Jason actually used that along with other software to generate maps for me. Uh, But the the circles here are to make themselves legible. So, you know, there's five or there's 10 or there's 20 or there's 30 jobs in a given area, but that doesn't really relate to the whole thing. So even though you see these big circles around Boston or Los Angeles and so forth. Actually, the jobs in major metropolitan areas are only 27% of the total. In a way, this map is very misleading. It makes you think that there's a whole lot of jobs in the big cities and then a sprinkling of them around the rest of the country. Actually, exactly the opposite is the case. 73% of the jobs are sprinkled out in smaller cities and towns around the country. And only 27 uh, percent are in the big cities, but in any case, it's the beginning of an answer. And with Jason's assistance, I'm still number crunching, trying to figure out, for instance, do the schools in major metropolitan areas, which pretty much correlate with the you know the big name schools, you know Princeton and Harvard and so forth. Although Princeton is you know let's call it the, the larger New York area. Do they actually have an edge in job placement? Do they not only help their students get jobs? I mean, you know, an answer to that already, to some extent, not as much as you might think, but do they help them get jobs in big cities, you know, with museums and other universities? So far, it looks like the answer is yes, but that may just be, coming back to what Nancy's done, that may just be because they have more graduates. So I still have to do the analysis that says, do they have, get those jobs in proportion to the numbers they graduate or beyond that proportion.
0: Still working on that one. I mean, one of the real triumphs, I think, probably in your work is to have tracked down 95% of the people who have completed dissertations during this time frame and be able to account for their employment status. That seems absolutely astonishing to me and represents a very complete data set in a way. Much more complete, I think, than the data set that Nancy was working with and I was wondering, Nancy, if you could speak a little bit to the the problems you had working with CAA um, Dissertation's roster.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So uh, I guess I'll talk about uh, messiness and when people talk about data, they always talk about messy data versus clean data. Um, And when it comes to the CAA Dissertation roster, I will say that it was messy in two ways one way which I wanted to clean up and the other way that I wanted to retain. And in terms of the cleaning up part were the kinds of inconsistencies, kind of typos, data entry, input errors that make it hard to be able to uh, render data legible to an audience. And those are things that you do want to clean up, right? And so I spent a lot of time doing that cleanup, like, you know, and I don't want to get into the, the details because it's so mundane, but you know, Do we call UCLA, UCLA or University of California, Los Angeles, or, uh, you know, (laughs) University of, uh, uh, you know, California, comma, Los Angeles, right? And these are kind of issues that become problematic when you're working with uh, computational methods in general. And so that was something that I definitely spent a lot of time cleaning up and trying to reconcile. But then there was another kind of messiness, and that was an interesting kind of messiness, which is the messiness of the work we do and our field. And the messy ways in which we've tried to account for the changes that this field has experienced over the past sixty years, which uh, has not been clean, cannot be cleaned, and of course is really something that I think this roster is just all about. I mean, this is it just shows us a story about how this field is unruly and has expanded in different ways, and people have moved in different directions and outgrown categories, um, and how certain labels that used to be very fashionable are no longer fashionable and the roster always uh, responds to them belatedly, I will say it is not uh, changing in real time. It's usually kind of catching up to certain changes. But those changes, some of which were very subtle and some of which were major, were things that I wanted to retain. And so, um, in the August twenty twenty piece, I had these uh, really like hard to read scatter plots that show the various terms that were used and how they changed. And I know they're hard to read, um, and I've I've received that criticism. And and in some ways, I wanted them though to represent the messiness of our field, which has struggled with how we can define all of these unruly elements under this one umbrella. And so, you know, those two were kind of, um, that was this kind of set of competing, let's say demands on this project in terms of this idea of cleaning, that's very, you know, a very big deal, I would say, among those of us who work with data. And then the other thing I would say about missing things, and this is, these are remarks that I've heard from colleagues who read the pieces. People wanna know more about demographics. They wanna know about race and ethnicity in particular. That's not there. If we want to find that out, we're going to have to dig deeper. I did use these uh, methods that one can use to infer gender for the authors, but I know that many colleagues want to know more about um, uh, different gender expressions and identities than the very simplistic uh, representations that I have in that recent piece. And many colleagues that I've talked to from all around the world want to know about what's happening in other countries. And I will say I would love to collaborate with colleagues who are working in other sites. I'd be happy to work with them to interpret their data. I don't feel confident about helping them discover the data. Like I don't know what their sources are. Like you know the ro- the dissertation roster from CA makes sense to me because I'm very familiar with this landscape. So uh, you know in many ways this might just be a call. If anyone has a data set that they feel like you know they want to start working with. I'd be thrilled to engage, but um, I don't know if I'm able to uh, to find that data set. Uh, but those are some of the issues that I've heard from leaders.
0: There's also this question that, on the one hand, you're both looking back at um, the past of the discipline and things that have already been completed and already happened, but you're using it to think proleptically about the future um, and the state of the state of play in the field. And part of that is in fact the the way in which we manage data and the kinds of data we capture in the first place and so there's the question that Nancy just raised of drilling down into the data of the past to see what more we can sort of mine from it. But I wonder if you each had to think about what you would want to see from both programs and maybe the discipline as a whole. Let's say something like CAA as our organizing entity in terms of data capture and collection for graduate students for programs. What would be the kind of top three prescriptions you might give about the way forward with data collection? Around um, the completion of dissertations, around employment, and around some categories of study, as we've been sort of referring to them? Well,
2: basically, I think graduate programs need to take a lot more responsibility for this. I mean, this is a discussion, not to say argument I've had with other colleagues over the years when I've, you know, suggested that we should be thinking seriously about job outcomes. And as one wonderful, you know, colleague said, you know, well, we're not a professional school. And I thought, what do you think we are? I mean, you know, really? But you know, he was deeply committed to the idea that this is the liberal arts, and you know, people come to graduate school and they learn for the love of learning and the love of knowledge and the love of art. And it's not our business to worry about whether they get jobs. And um, I just think that's wrong. I think that is the, in fact, the dominant psychology in graduate programs today. And I think it's a, a terrible, ghastly mistake. And that, you know, people who go to to graduate school for a PhD are investing the better part of a decade, sometimes literally a decade, and they deserve, A, to have accurate information about what their prospects are at the far end, both about the field as a whole, about the school that they, they're going to study at or considering studying at, but they also I think the schools should be tracking them beyond that. And they should be staying in touch more rigorously with their graduates and seeing where they've gone, where the, you know, what kinds of jobs they've gotten, the, the kind of data that I've done research that I've done by brute force, you know, by my assistant using Facebook and LinkedIn, and then me just like, you know, Googling people to try to find them. Uh, that should be just standard that every school should, should be tracking that.
1: And uh, maybe I'll just uh, respond to to uh, to Pepe as well. And I absolutely agree that this question about not just outcomes, but I would say trajectories, is really really important, right? What are where are our students heading? How do they get there? Right? It is really interesting to see that some new PhDs end up in uh, contingent positions used to be, you know, you maybe you go out for a year or two and you'd expect to be in a contingent position and then you would get a tender track job. And now I just see uh, students moving from one contingent position to another. I just worry about what that means, you know, just, I mean, these are just very precarious um, positions as as we all know, right? And so I absolutely agree with uh, Pepe about that. Um, I'm going to tell you though, uh, just um, in terms of this question about what CAA should be doing and uh, future data collection, uh, our group, so including the Penn State group, Catherine and Carolyn, we've all been very closely in communication with CAA about what we want to see for the future of the roster. And this is such a kind of like a data geek thing to say, but uh, but I will let you know that, you know, one of our big requests has been that we want that data to be delivered in a format that's machine readable. Like, you know, right now it's kind of coming in in like a Microsoft Word document via email and then some copies and pasted and then posted on- online. Um, and uh, so we've been working with them to try to kind of get that data that's in a format that we can use and analyze immediately so that Pepe doesn't have to pay a, a, grad, a, a student 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 assistant to work for I don't know how many hours that was a huge, you know, project to transcribe those those entries, as with our colleagues at Penn State who also worked manually to get at those earlier PDFs and so um, that is something that we see for the future. And um, I know that, uh, you know, the CA has just hired a a new director of digital content who is very engaged in that as well. So that's part of the future in terms of um, uh, what we see. Uh, And I do think this information about trajectories, about outcomes, about demographics, um, I would uh, imagine that this would be material and information that could be useful to us on so many levels.
0: So part of these projects, and we've already touched on this a little bit, which is implied in the title, what do we know about the future of art history? Is this idea that by looking back, we can get a sense of where we're going. So to wrap up, I'm just gonna ask you both, where are we going as art historians? What is the future of the field? And how has working in this mode changed the way that you think about the directions in which the discipline is headed?
1: Thank you. That's such a big and provocative question. So I will just take a small chunk out of it and say that that I do hope that just kind of looking at our discipline in this way has just opened up conversations because I absolutely agree with Pepe that we need to be talking about so many major concerns in the field that uh, many of us have brushed aside. And these are the conversations I want to be having. And I want to be having them not because I think we are in this terrible hopeless moment of crisis, but rather because I think that it's only by talking through them that we can kind of imagine these robust and exciting futures, which I think are possible. So I do want to say that, that, that sometimes, you know, when I get mired in this language of, of, uh, of crisis, which I know, you know, is a kind of a, a motif of the humanities, that it seems as if I'm kind of going in this really negative direction. To me, it's really a positive discussion, and it's really about, you know, taking control of, of where we think we want our futures to be headed. Um, and I will say that one thing that came up to me in this whole project over and over again really had to do with, in in many ways, though, our present, I would say, to kind of get between the past and the future, our present as actual historians. As I was digging into that first piece, especially looking back to some of these early moments of the roster and moments of change, I was in contact with many previous employees of CAA, um, and they were really kind and generous in terms of offering their feedback. None of them could remember any of the things I was asking them about, um, which is not surprising, it was a long time ago. I think also many of us are in departments where we have sadly lost some of the most senior members in our fields, right? And this is something that makes me really just think about the ways in which we want to, you know, who do, who is charged who has the responsibility of writing this history? And of course, the history of art historical ideas and debates, that has been written and that's being written. I'm not worried about that. But some of these kinds of, um, again, more human, maybe even more procedural, more practical, institutional questions, I think those um, have not been necessarily taken uh, into account. And so I think kind of part of that future is kind of taking more control over um, us as a group collectively, as art historians, of of what we want that to look like. And so, you know, that's to me really a key part and that's what's come out of this process. Even though, again, I started off with that very mundane, very particular question to fill out my footnote, I think I've come to a very different set of conclusions now.
0: And Pepe, what about you? Where do you see us going? as a discipline.
2: Well, um, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but um, you know there's a kind of meme that's been going around for some years about presentism. Oh my god, it's all contemporary art and you know friends who are having trouble getting a job say bitterly, "Oh my god, you know, the contemporary people, they can get jobs, but you know, the rest of us are out in the cold, no one's interested in the past anymore." This is not true. I am here to tell you this is not true. I mean, first of all, you know, in the question of, you know, what are people studying? uh, This doesn't have anything about jobs, but the single largest group of dissertations in the 10 year period I looked at is European art between 1400 and 1600, over 190 dissertations. I mean, an order of magnitude greater than anything else. And I don't, you know, it's like, you know, people have not abandoned the Renaissance or the what have you. Um, Also, what are the fields that, you know, have got particular or the subfields that have particularly good hiring records. They're all over the place. Some of them, uh, well, it's like, you know, African art between 1870 and 1900 and then between 1970 and the present, Latin American art between 1800 and 1970. Okay, you think these are, you know, kind of hot new fields. Of course, people are doing hiring in these areas. And, you know, Nancy, you mentioned who are, who, you know, who's teaching Latin American art? My colleague, Edward Sullivan, you know, plug for my, my friend here. Um, but also East Asian art between 30,000 BC and 500 CE. Apparently that's a really hot field. So with South Asian art between 500 and 1800 CE. So, you know, this is real art history. This is not trendiness. And finally, I wanna say that, you know, most fields, as I mentioned earlier, uh, sort of are in a range between about 40% and 60%. You know, that's how you get the average at 51. Hiring in contemporary art is between 30% and 50%. It's lower than in other fields.
0: So art history is not going away. The history is not going away. Well, I just want to thank you, Nancy and Pepe, for spending this time. It's been a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. Um, and I also want to thank you for your contributions to CA Reviews and encourage all of you to go read at CA Reviews, um, Nancy Um's first essay, Nancy and Emily Hagen's follow-up piece. And finally, Pepe Carmel's rejoinder, which is hopefully forthcoming uh, later this
2: year.